Hey, y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, you guys, on the line, I've got Bronco March Teach. That's how I say it. I'm a Texan. I don't know. Um, Eastern European names. What do I know? But I do know this. Like I said on Fox Business Channel a couple of weeks ago, he's the author of Yesterday's Man about Joe Biden. And uh, he's a guy, 99% sure this is where I first learned, that the first thing that Joe Biden did when he joined the U.S. Senate in 1973 was to denounce Richard Nixon's hasty and precipitous withdrawal from Vietnam. Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of other great stuff in there, too, about what a horrible bastard Joe Biden is. Uh, but I'm glad I'm, I had a chance to say the title of your book on Fox. Welcome to the show. How you doing, Bronco? Uh, hey, great. Thanks for having me. And I didn't realize that you gave me a shout out, but I, uh, I appreciate that. I try to it's fit as many points like. in a minute and a half as I possibly can. It ain't, ain't easy, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So anyways, uh, also writing for Jacobin here, the quiet merger between online platforms and the national security state continues. And so, geez, it was nine years ago, nine and a half that Ed Snowden leaked all of that stuff. And man, did a bunch of important news stories come out of there. And then since then, we've had the Vault 7 leak and slight reforms by the Congress and a couple of things struck down by the courts. But I think we got a pretty wide eye on to just how well they're surveilling us. It's essentially to unlimited degrees, whatever they want. And the, the most important one of the Snowden things to me was they keep your location data. This is my paranoia about cell phones in the first place in the 90s. Was, don't you get it? They're going to triangulate your ass everywhere you go. Yeah, not only that, we know they keep your records of everywhere you've been for the last five years, at least. Every living room you sat in, every bedroom you've been in, every backseat of a car you rode in, and who else was with you in that car, or whatever it is. Um, and uh, it's just unlimited, just, you know, uh, East German Stasi in their wildest dreams um could have never come up with this stuff and then you have this web 2.0 where they got us in these really great and functional and fun and addictive walled gardens like facebook and twitter and of course the one and only preeminent search engine which doesn't work nearly as well as it used to but still better than all the rest of them google and um and the major question then where does the U.S. national government begin and end? And the same for Silicon Valley. It really is one and the same thing to such a great degree. And um, But as you write here, we're finding out more and more about how blurry that line is 
and uh, the shape of it. So I guess, first of all, can we start with this uh, recent report in The Intercept by Ken Klippenstein about the Department of Homeland Security and their efforts to influence social media in America? I know there's a hell of a lot there, but then again, you just wrote a piece reviewing it also. Yes, so uh, the uh, Ken Klippenstein and Lee Fong uh, obtained these government documents um, through this lawsuit that was launched uh, over uh, basically tech censorship, um, particularly you know to do with the the Hunter Biden laptop story, which I think we all remember. Uh, and um, there's a there's a lot in there, as you say. A lot of it is basically it's it's DHS officials, and particularly this one. Uh, Sub-agency within the DHS, the uh, the the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, um, and they, what we see in these documents is, um, is is discussions about what you know the federal government can do, uh, and particularly the Department of Homeland Security, in concert with all these uh, private firms, to basically uh, control the the spread and the impact of of what they call MDM, so misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Um, and a lot of that is is the discussions are actually you know not to do with with direct government censorship. A lot of it's to do with things like increasing information literacy uh, and boosting quote-unquote authoritative or, or trusted sources or, or directing people to trusted sources and you know giving funding to particular sources that, that are considered trusted and so on and so forth so you know that that's not so bad um, but uh, I think it is important to note that that censorship is a part of, of what was going on as well I mean one of the things that 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 Fang and and, and Klippenstein uh, uh, point out is that you know among the documents uh, there's there's one that that outlines the use of a, a government portal um, that lets uh, government officials, law enforcement officials, um, basically suggest what uh, posts on Facebook and Instagram they think should be suppressed. Uh, you know, uh, beyond that, even though they you know the the the, the People involved in these discussions are constantly saying, you know, it's not a good idea for the government to, to censor, let alone to, to you know, even just uh, be a, a serve as a clearinghouse for information because that could seem to be government propaganda. Um, you know, it, it, whether the government is doing it directly or indirectly, that that is still government-driven censorship, and that's really what's going on. I mean, they're pushing. Uh, these tech firms to, to, you know, throttle information that they see as, uh, you know, well, misinformation or, or in some way, ways harmful. Um, you know, another example of that is the, is the, the, the Hunter Biden laptop story, which I just mentioned, um, in the lawsuit, uh, that, that, that Fang and Klippenstein draw, uh, it, it's mentioned that, you know, the FBI was directly involved in, in, um, pushing, uh, Twitter and Facebook to, to censor the laptop story. I mean, if, I don't know if people remember, but, but when that story hit, when the New York post released it, you were not able to, uh, uh share that story on Twitter. You couldn't even uh, send it to someone in a, in a private, uh, DM. Um, Importantly and, in October of 2020, it was mm -hmm. the Republicans big October surprise against the Democrats. And somehow they erased it off of the internet, which sounds impossible, but they did it effectively enough. 
Yeah, and and that was at a time when you know I think it was a, a few dozen, uh, maybe more, intelligence officials also uh, signed this letter saying this is just Russian disinformation, and a whole host of outlets published that uncritically. Um, we now know that you know I mean I think it was obvious at the time as well, but we now know for sure that that is not true. The, the laptop and its contents are not Russian disinformation. That that claim has simply disappeared. But it, that that also led. Um, you know, uh, outlets like the uh, like NPR, for instance, to say, you know what, we're just not going to cover the story at all because we just we think there's no basis. I mean, obviously there is a partisan motivation for them to do that too. Um, but I think the fact that they had this cover uh, added to it. So you know, I mean, and there's that. There's other other details in the lawsuit. You know, they they point to this um, podcast interview with another FBI official who kind of boasts about the fact that the FBI was in close contact with tech firms. You know, he says sometimes on a monthly or even a weekly basis asking them what they're seeing, telling them what they're seeing, and sort of uh, coming up with what, you know, what they, sh they think should be suppressed. Uh, there's also uh, talk of, um, you know, I think on February 18th, uh, some of the participants mentioned that uh, with, with tensions between Russia and Ukraine rising, you know, they, they need to have more discussions about what they can do in the, you know, information space around that whole conflict. And sure enough, I mean, since then, what have we seen? Um, we've seen that Facebook changed its uh, rules around uh, calls for violence uh, and and around praising Nazis. So, but you know, only specifically in the context of the Ukraine war, and only specifically. Uh, for, by you change, know, you the, mean they lifted the restriction on them? Ex exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, used to be you couldn't call for violence uh, on Facebook. Um, it seems like at the behest of uh, the U.S. government, Facebook said, "You know what? Now you can call for violence, but only if you're calling for violence against Russian leadership." So, you know, if a, if a person posts something like "death to Putin," that's okay. Um, used to be that you couldn't. Praise Azov, uh, the Azov Regiment, which is a, a far-right regiment made up of, of neo-Nazis and other ultra-nationalists, very dangerous outfit. Um, for years, that was banned. Now they changed it. They said, oh, well, you know what? You, uh, you can praise them, but only under limited circumstances. If you say that they're brave for defending Ukraine, then that's okay, which to me seems actually more dangerous and propagandistic um, if you sort of uh, put their, their contribution to the war in such an anodyne um, way. But but there you go. And you know, we, we've there's been other examples beyond that. PayPal, for instance, um, mm -hmm. shuttered some uh, independent news outlets. The great uh, consortiumnews.com. Yep, consortium news. Which Mint is Press, just criminal. Uh, like, how dare they? Joe Loria, their editor, was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal for 20 years for the London Times. And and his yeah, predecessor, the founder and editor, was Robert Perry from Newsweek and the Associated Press. And they're going to say, oh, nope, you don't exist now. To them? To anyone then? It's outrageous. And, and you know, it's, it's key because both of those outlets were very critical of the kind of, you know, let's say established Western narrative on the war, um, including in some of the stuff that I've talked about, you know, the, the, the role and the nature of the Azov regiment. Um, and, and people don't just show their accounts. It actually um, seized the funds that they had. Um, so not only did it um, make fundraising harder for these outlets, which are already running on fumes, you know, you're not, you're not making a ton of money if you're, if you're an independent outlet on the web, 
But then they also said, well, the money that you have collected, well, now that's ours. And maybe we'll give it back to you later on. We'll see. Um, and they didn't really give a very good reason for why they, they shut them down. But I think it's it's obvious that that the war has something to do with it. So uh, there, there's a lot in there. I would encourage people. I would encourage people to read my piece. I'd encourage people to read the original Intercept. I would encourage people to to click through all the links in all of those and actually have a read of the documents themselves and, and see what's uh, what's being said. It's pretty long, but it's interesting stuff. And, yeah. and you know, you'll get a sense of this, you know, what, what the headline calls this kind of creeping merger of these two, uh, these two entities. Mm. So you have a great paragraph here, all important, just in uh, 75 words or something. The University of Adelaide and Stanford University both did these studies about the what John Robb calls the Twitter swarm and essentially and I guess the Facebook swarms too and what have you and to show just how much of this is centrally and artificially directed sort of like well the other October surprise of 2020 the FBI's fake kidnapping plot where 10 out of 12 plotters were FBI informants <laughs> Um, how much of that is the Twitter swarm too? FBI informant bots going around pretending to love Israel and want to arm Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Snowden before. Uh, one of the, I mean, among the many revelations uh, in the Snowden documents was uh, this this you know particular document that outlined some of the powers that 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 U.S. government agencies have to manipulate things online. Um, and that, you know, I mean, we're talking about at, at this point, you know, 2008, 2010, that kind of period. So this is, this is old, uh, stuff in many ways, you know, they talked about the, the way that they could create accounts to, to spread particular, uh, uh, information, particular narratives. They talked about the way that, that, you know, some agencies have the power to, to come in and edit comments, uh, on, 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 you know, with their videos on news stories and the like. So, uh, this isn't new, but I mean, the scale of it is pretty remarkable in that, in that University of Adelaide study, they looked at, at 5 million tweets. This is a pretty massive sample size um and what they found was that in, in any given hour the likelihood of a tweet on you on the ukraine war on, in, in either direction uh uh being from a from a bot was between it would hover between 60 and 80 percent um and then the the when they looked at the the, the tweets that were coming from bots um 90 of those tweets were was sort of pro-ukraine tweets um now you know i mean the, the, obviously ukraine is, is being attacked by russia you know it, 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 morally it's not difficult to know where you stand on that position but i think it is significant that that um you know it reflects the fact that that the way that our perceptions of this war are being sh uh, shaped um you know not just by, by tech firms not just by private actors who are who are using their resources to to try and sway people one way or another but but specifically by the u.s government uh, overwhelmingly you know we hear so much i think in u.s discourse and, and, and in the west more generally about russia about china about iran about how these countries are kind of coming in and trying to manipulate us online but it turns out it's actually the united states government that's that's doing the most to do that um, and, you know, it's not just the, the narratives that they're pushing forward aren't necessarily just things like, you know, go Ukraine, which, which you know, I would say most people, most level-headed people agree with. Um, they're pushing stuff like, you know, trying to obscure the causes of the war, uh, telling us that all this entire thing is purely about 
you know, Russian expansion, expansionism and imperialism and, and Putin being Hitler and the like, instead of, you know, some of the stuff that, that I know you and, and, and myself and, and a host of other commentators who have been kind of attacked have, have tried to stress, which is that there is a very important role for, for U.S. Uh, foreign policy in, in the cause of this war that we have to understand. So, you know, it's, it has a, it has a uh, potentially a, a bad impact overall. And I'll just say one more thing, which is that, you know, where I first found out about this study, was from consortium news um so there you go uh one of the one of the outlets that that you know is being censored for for you know supposedly pushing malinformation or whatever um and yet it turns out that without it you know we we might not know about um some of the ways that that public opinion is being shaped and manipulated by uh, by the u.s government hang on just one second hey y'all the audiobook of my book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, the audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at ExpandDesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well, suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with ExpandDesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's ExpandDesigns.com. Man, I wish I was in school so I could drop out and sign up for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom instead. Tom has done such a great job on putting together a classical curriculum for everyone from junior high schoolers on up through the postgraduate level. And it's all very reasonably priced. Just make sure you click through from the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Real history. Real economics. Real education. Yeah, man. Um... Well, you know, I remember interviewing this guy a couple of years ago about how, I can't remember, I think he was an Australian. I don't know. And he did some study about um, just manipulating Google search results. And I guess his conclusion was that people use Google to search, like, what's the closest burger stand or which way's north from here or two plus two equals what and this kind of, like, simple factual stuff all the time. And the first result is just taken as truth and it usually is like is it raining right now or is it about to be or something you know well i don't know weather's a bad example but you know what i mean um and then so people are trained like that to just accept the first result as essentially the answer to whatever they're looking for so then if they start searching for candidates and he tried i guess he did the test over and over and over again if he skews the test for democrat names uh, he ends up getting a much more positive result in terms of, I forgot what it was later, how he measured their support for the different candidates or what, uh, how they ended up voting or whatever it was. But anyway, um, and it's the same for the Republicans. If he just switched it and made it where the first few results all showed Republican candidates, that that essentially, because people are so well trained to just take that as a factual answer, like where's the closest gas station kind of a thing, which is the candidate for my district? Oh, it's this guy. And then that that's just the power of suggestion there was immeasurable, he said. Well, not immeasurable, but measurable, but very high. And so I guess mm -hmm. the idea was that they go, yeah, great. 
we'll just do that. Then we'll de-rank you and we'll rank him up and de-boost that and unfollow this and shadow ban over here and tweak this a little bit. And they know that ultimately, you know, they can to a great degree influence, if not outright control the narrative all over the place. Well, that, that's interesting and alarming. And, and I mean, I agree with you what you were saying that, that Google has become less useful. I think it's a direct result of this kind of push to, um, you know, have it have it reflect quote-unquote authoritative sources or mm -hmm. quote-unquote trusted sources which I, I mean it's it's just evident you know when you when i look at google now when i look something up um you know if it's something to do with the anything news anything political i'll be greeted by you know pages upon pages of kind of basically the same story uh being <laughs> rewritten in different ways uh by the new York times npr Washington Post, so on and so forth, really telling me the same things over and over and over again. Um, whereas the old Google, you would have that, but you would also have a mix of kind of more alternative sources that you could kind of, you know, you could maybe learn something new there. Uh, that doesn't mean that that the alternative sources were were always completely accurate, or you know that the, everything in them was exactly what what one would agree with. But you you would find some uh, interesting alternate information. I mean, I guarantee you now, if you if you went on Google and you looked up. You know, is is Azov Regiment um, a far right group or something along those lines? I, I'm sure that the top results uh, would be the spate of of articles from from quote unquote authoritative sources. You know, the Telegraph, Durchwald, uh, uh, or, or other outlets saying, "Oh, you know, uh, Azov has really changed its stripes. Now it's not really a far right uh, organization anymore." And you know, my my piece for Jacobin, which is a a, a, a comparatively little known and 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 not as well resourced uh, left wing publication, uh, which which really goes into the evidence of of you know is has a, has Azov really changed? I'm sure would be you know driven to the to the second page um, because it's not considered a a quote unquote authoritative source. Yep. Well, in fact, I just googled it, and one of the first ones is much Azov about nothing. The Ukrainian neo Nazis canard, um, and then they have. Uh, Al Jazeera profile and mapping militants. I'm going to read this one later. That looks interesting. Uh, and, you know, it depends on from what time period stuff comes up. Anything from, you know, up until last year or late last year will tend to have some pretty bad stuff in it. And then this year they had to start rewriting it all. Say, look, this real-ass Nazi torchlight parade in the middle of the night in honor of Stepan Bandera, oh, that's nothing like those terrorist university kids in Donald Trump golf uniforms with their tiki torches. That's some real terrorism there, you know, but these guys who are, you know, look straight out of some black and white footage from the thirties, uh, never mind them. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, it is, it's really amazing to see, uh, the way that they're able to do it. And, you know, I don't know. Um, you ever at this guy John Robb, Global Gorillas? He's I um, haven't heard of him. Okay, so he's like a former military guy and some kind of strategist during Iraq War II. Although by his own account, maybe not the best one, but it's an interesting book he wrote anyway. But he's kind of a futurist, and uh, particularly on like fourth generation warfare and all this and that. And here he's like arguing that essentially the Twitter swarm makes even nation states obsolete where it's just it's not the power isn't even in biden's hands to negotiate with putin right now it's really whether the girl from who's the boss and her friends approve or not and their moral judgment 
of whether this is, you know, uh, Chamberlainian appeasement of Hitler or this kind of thing and how the way he puts it, all media, all everything, all political, all party politics, everything is all downstream from Twitter and, you know, the madness of this swarm. And it's the same people who, you know, went around doing all the Me Too and the cancellation over, you know, this or that transgression or whatever. Now they've moved to this. They were the COVID hysterics, uh, you know, and, and the rest. And how his take, I guess, essentially is there's no stopping them. I guess your take is, well, but the government has the ability and, and other forces too, I guess, but especially the government has the ability to really push and direct and manipulate this swarm and get them essentially chanting whatever Bellingcat says or whatever it is that they need. Um, by the way, that's one of the first things that came up on the front page is their take on Azov, which I know has changed recently. You know, they used to say, hey, these guys are pretty dangerous, but then they quit saying that. But anyway, so that anyway, that's what John Robb is about, is that like that it's the madness of the Twitter mob now that we're even sort of like the empire itself. It's just out of control. Nobody can drive this ship. It's just a free-for-all of corruption and violence. Well, I mean, I think we saw that with the uh, the, the, uh, the progressives' incredibly mild letter suggesting ever so gently that, that diplomacy might be a good idea um, to, to prevent us all from you know, dying in a nuclear war, let alone, you know, to, to have this war continue grinding on for, for uh, Ukrainians to just keep dying and dying. Um, and, and what happened? I mean, it was, it was overwhelmingly the response, I would say, on Twitter um, that, that led the progressives to withdraw that letter, which, by the way, I don't think they should have done. I think that the events that followed shortly after um, showed very clearly they could have stood by what they had done and, and you know, held, held their own. But, but whatever, I mean, it does show you how it, it does have an impact. Um, and, and remember, I mean, as, as you said, it, it's a global resource. It shapes discourse everywhere, certainly in, in, in English-speaking countries, it, it shapes discourse. Um, it has already to, to a great degree. I mean, you know, the, the discussion I see on Twitter uh, as it regards to the war in Ukraine, the, the, the possibility or even desirability of nuclear war is in an entirely different universe to, to when I speak to, you know, normal people um, who aren't on the platform. Um, right. uh, so it's a, it's a very dangerous thing. And it's, it's because of the fact that there's such a global reach um, and the fact that, that, you know, the U S government has such a, a direct line into, into the decision making of what happens at these firms. Um, the other governments do not. I mean, certainly the Russian and Chinese governments don't, but you know, not even, um, European governments have that kind of uh, control. I mean, that that is a really uh, uh, pretty extreme power for anyone to have to be able to kind of decide what can and can't be said um, on a global platform that that shapes, you know, what what is and isn't allowed in public discourse across multiple countries around the world. Yeah. Hey, by the way, I just want to work in parentheses here. I'm glad you guys are publishing Daniel Lazar over there, Lazar. Because I really like him, but he is just way too communist to write for us at antiwar.com anymore. But <laughs> we had our differences. <laughs> but I still think he's really sharp, and and uh, a lot of his takes on foreign policy are just so great. So I'm glad he landed somewhere. Well, we're a 
Yeah, well, we're, you know, we're a broad tent. We 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 publish a lot of different people at, at Jacobin, you know, the, on the and we do too at antiwar.com. We're we we include uh, all the way to the left and pretty damn far to the right, uh, as long as it's good on war. Of course, you've been a regular for a long time, and we featured him for a long time, but eventually we just had our differences. But um, point is, though, I still really like him, and so I was happy to see his um, his uh, byline on the right hand margin there as well. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, it's important when it comes to, to, to war, certainly in foreign policy in the U.S., it's like, it's good to have a little bit of um, cross-ideological, uh, you know, uh, work on that front because it's such a, a massive um, and powerful uh, entity that, that's kind of being, you know, fought that, that you know, I, I think ideological silos aren't, aren't helpful on, on that on that particular issue. Yeah. It's funny because as we're talking, a guy on Twitter is accusing me and I guess then all libertarians of being Marxists because I said something about what we're against is essentially the power elite, right? The consolidated power of the corporate elite and the national government. And that doesn't mean that I want a centralization of power, or the nationalization of property or any kind of thing like that. I'm arguing for radical laissez-faire in opposition to that. But all a right-winger can hear is, oh, if Wall Street is bad, then that makes you a communist, this kind of thing. When my point really is that, and this is how I felt about this since I was even a teenager, was that all of my right-wing friends and all of my left-wing friends are essentially broke and powerless, relatively, and that that's the American people, right? That's everybody. And then there's the ultra-powerful who control the biggest firms, especially the arms industry and all that, and the national security state. You know, the national government, the, the most violent, corrupt parts of the national government, like the Pentagon and the FDA and things like that, and how it should just be not a right-wing or left-wing war at all. It could even be a libertarian one, but just an American, uh, truly 99.99% against the actual evil, corrupt power that's got this country in a stranglehold, man. And that's something that we should all be able to agree on doing without having a communist revolution or a right-wing reactionary one or even my total paradise of total decentralization and laissez-faire economics, but just absolutely put an end to these intolerable violations. I mean, in the 1990s, it was even the know-your-customer regulations. They said that every bank has to snitch on every customer to the feds now with no warrant, with no nothing. They just have an open door into everybody's bank account. Well, what in the hell is that? And, of course, everything Snowden revealed and the rest, Vault 7 and the rest of that just makes know your customer pale. No one remembers that. No one remembered that after September 11th even. Um, but the thing is, out here in the country, it should be the case that all of us can be united against corruption on Wall Street, corruption in the military-industrial complex, in pharmaceuticals, in agriculture, and in government, in the national security state, and all their wars, and then especially all of their evil electronic police state that the worst science fiction meth-out madman could have never dreamed of that they have been able to establish with the National Security Agency, the FBI, and the CIA against the people of this country, DHS too. Now all their influence even and censorship over how we're allowed to talk and communicate with each other over the internet, all this dialing down and shadow banning and 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 fake swarms and all this crazy. Everybody ought to be against this. Just like everybody ought to be for, you know, assuming you support the status quo of this constitution whatsoever, then 
don't you think we should have like free and fair elections that with like easily recountable ballots and these kinds of things like no matter where you come from on the spectrum think we should have elections every two years still right and that we should have ballots that people can trust and whatever it, all this basic stuff this should be for everyone i mean obviously us libertarians are the ones who got it really straight but all the rest of you were invited to to oppose all the worst things about our government and sh isn't that the great realignment the people versus the power how could it be anything but that and if it's the 99 percent or the 99.99 percent well that's not just the radical left that's got to be like, yeah, it's, and we're not against everything. We're just against these bankers getting free money from the government at our expense. We're against these arms manufacturers lobbying to expand NATO and start a war so they can sell fighter jets and all these obvious things. You guys, as Bill Hicks would say, in your hearts, you all know the arguments. Everybody knows what we're talking about here. Everybody does, right? I have no doubt that, you know, on a variety of issues, we will have disagreements, but, you know, on, on certain things, I think there's a lot of overlap, but, you know, whether you're conservative, liberal, socialist, libertarian, whatever, um, you know, you mentioned DHS. I mean, that's, that's one area where I think um, a lot of different people's interests overlap uh, in terms of kind of um, restraining that particular agency, because DHS is not just involved in this particular thing that we're talking about here. Um, there's been a spate of stories over the last I don't know, three, four months um, about how DHS has, has basically started acting as a, uh, a domestic surveillance agency. You know, I mean, DHS is supposed to exist to, well, sure, it, it maintains the, the the security of the United States and it, it, it's sort of supposed to, to uphold immigration laws and, and maintain the border and the, that kind of thing. But it's it, it, in, the, in the pursuit of those goals, it started to... Uh, you mentioned geolocation data. Well, uh, the, the the DHS is now you know a, a major customer of these private firms that that collect and store all this geolocation data that that we're constantly, unwittingly uh, pinging around, um, and so it has just a massive trove of information on, on on basically every adult in the United States and where they've been, what their movements are like. Um, it does the same for a variety of other private firms that collect information. You know, so for instance, um, uh, firms that have uh, uh, information around around utility bills, uh, uh, DMV records, uh, a, a whole bunch of stuff that that reveals again a stunningly vast amount of intimate information about about not just the people that they are ostensibly targeting um but but every adult american basically um and and i think that's really worrying i mean we saw what happened with dhs uh, uh during the, the protests and last and sorry in 2020 uh against police brutality in portland and other places the way that suddenly american streets um began to look like you know, a, a, a street in, in more torn Iraq or something, uh, the way that the uh, 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 these kind of um, uh, armored uh, DHS officers were, were, you know, walking around, patrolling, even even seizing people off the sidewalk and shoving them into into vans. Um, and, you know, so I think if you're a libertarian who's, who's worried about uh, the government kind of Treading on you and, and and trampling your rights and and doing all sorts of scary authoritarian stuff. Or if you're a um, if you're a liberal or, or any kind of lefty who's worried about the way that these uh, agencies have 
expanded their role and the way that they target uh, uh, immigrants, the way that they kind of break apart families, all this kind of stuff. I think regardless of what side you're coming from, you have an interest and a motivation to try and, and kind of restrain the what what is, to me, just a, a rapidly broadening uh, remit for this um, this this colossally uh, wasteful and, and opaque uh, agency in the United States. Yeah, man. All right. Well, listen, I'll let you go and have a rest of a good weekend, I hope. But I uh, sure appreciate your great writing and uh, your time on the show, as always, Bronco. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate what you guys are doing in anti-war as well. Right on. Thanks, man. All right, you guys, that is Bronco March Teach. He's at jacobin.com. And this was called The Quiet Merger Between Online Platforms and the National Security State Continues. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.